0: Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry.
1: Alright, if you want to look at Romans 5... 17 to 18, this is a very similar verse to what we did in Sunday school. For if by the one's transgression, death reigned through the one, so much more will those receiving grace's abundance and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one, Jesus the anointed. So then, just as by one transgression unto condemnation for all human beings, so also by one act of righteousness unto rectification of life for all human beings. And so Romans 5, like 1 Corinthians 15, pictures the death of all occurring through Adam. And just as irresistibly and unconditionally, life is granted to all through the second Adam, who is Christ. All die, and just so will all be made alive, is what Paul is saying. And so salvation occurs prior to these dead ones. They're dying physically, but spiritually. So prior to their being able to do anything about it, because death here is a kind of uh, bondage, Christ has done something for us. And so Romans 5, 1 Corinthians 15, they put it simply and point blank. This is 1 Corinthians. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. This is an unconditional understanding. And so we have two understandings here that we talked about. And in conditionalism, that all people are convicted by the law, either that law written on the heart or in the Old Testament, they know who God is and his righteous requirements, they feel guilty, they meet Christ who frees them from the law. That would be a a conditional understanding. But in this passage, the law or human knowledge and insight, they are not the condition through which God is apprehended. Christ is the condition. So there are two ways of understanding Christianity. We might call this conditionalism and unconditionalism. And in conditionalism, the law, and this could be the Jewish law, or it could be the law written on the heart, you know, natural revelation. That is the condition. That is the precursor to understanding Christ. And in unconditionalism, Christ is the understanding of the law. And so in conditionalism, it's, it's a kind of forward-looking thing that we first begin with the law and then we have Christ. In unconditionalism, it's a retrospective view that we look back on all things, the law and even creation, through Christ. And the conditional form of justification by faith it presumes that faith is the condition. In other words, we're really redefining faith in the two systems. That faith does what the law did previously, or what the law could not do, but it satisfies the human, you know, all here is human knowledge, human understanding, and it satisfies that condition. While the unconditional form of justification by faith presumes that faith, or justification and Christ are not conditioned by anything, but are themselves the beginning and, and the end. Christ is the Alpha and Omega. He is the condition. He is the goal. And so conditionalism and unconditionalism, they involve us in opposites. And they're often melded together, and I have to admit my own I think that some sections of Scripture we read and we see, well, uh, maybe this is unconditionalism like 1 Corinthians and other sections we're not sure about. And so as a result, the unconditional good news has often been obscured. And its implications really for every area of theology, I think, have not been acknowledged. And Luther is the key example. He's kind of uh, put into the whole understanding. You know, he certainly has strong notes of unconditionalism. This is the beauty of the Protestant Reformation and of Martin Luther, his notion of justification by faith. But the question is if faith itself becomes the new condition. In other words, it can function like the law itself. And here we can't really appeal to Luther because you can do both things in Luther, or Calvin, or Augustine. And so it may have been Luther's intent, and I think it was, and Calvin's, to describe an unconditional gospel. I think this is really what makes us Protestants. But what results is often confusion and contradiction. And so what I want to do is just kind of create, I'll I'll set this up in the book of Romans, because this is really where this occurs. If we are thinking of conditionalism, probably we're thinking of chapters 1 to 4. And if we're thinking of unconditionalism, probably we're looking at chapters 5, 6, and 8. And chapter 7 is right in between these two systems, and it's where the two systems collide and come into contention with one another. And so the conditionalists, and in chapter 7 I'm thinking in particular of verse 7 to verse 25, if you want to look there. The conditionalists think of this passage as the typical struggle with sin in all people, leading to conversion. Or even some people say, this is the Christian. This is the Christian being described here. And the unconditionalists read it as a depiction of the deception regarding the law, binding all people in a kind of futile bondage. And so in conditionalism, 7 to 25, is describing what one is delivered to, either as a Christian or, among people some people, a Christian in process. So Calvin and Luther and many would read Romans 7, 7 to 25, as, oh, this is the normal Christian life. Augustine reads this as the normal Christian life. But in unconditionalism, This is more of a picture of the struggle and deception, not of the Christian, but of the uh, non-Christian. And this is what we're delivered from, not what we're delivered to. And so there's a contrasting understanding all the way across the board regarding human knowledge, anthropology, regarding the significance of revelation, Really, our doctrine of God, theology, our Christology, and atonement. But we can look at this chapter, and this is really my goal this morning, and just bring out the differences. This chapter demonstrates we cannot bring these two systems together. And I think we we tend to want to. In terms of human knowledge, what we call epistemology, conditionalism reads Romans 7 7 and following as evidencing here is someone, they're fully aware of who God is, they're aware of the law, and their incapacity to keep the law. And so it depicts a kind of dawning awareness, concluding with 24 and 25 thank God, you know. I've been rescued. And so conditionalism, it does require this correct understanding of God, the law, the self, in light of law. And this is the launching pad for faith. And so conditionalists would read this and say, Aha, see, here is Paul's introspective conscience, or Adam, or all people, that this is a picture, really, of what it takes to become a Christian. And thus the passage is read to demonstrate this, and it, it can even be a, not just becoming a Christian, and this is still what a Christian looks like. The Unconditionalist reads this section, the movement of 7 to 25. It is not one of freedom of thought, it's not a dawning realization, but in fact it's a depiction of a growing incapacity. You know, Paul says in this passage, Passage. He's talking probably about Genesis 3. I was deceived, and he uses the word I, in regard to the law. Sin deceived me, and I died. This is not right thinking. This is deceptive. You know, you've been deceived. I've been lied to, and the lie is death dealing. And so it's probably not appropriate to equate death and freedom of thought. The the passage here is inclusive of thinking and willing. He says, I don't do what I want to do, and what I want to do, I don't do. He says in verse 15, I don't understand my own actions. I can't understand myself. And only retrospectively, in light of Christ... Does he understand what his pre-Christian condition was? And so this understanding does not allow for the optimism surrounding human knowing as we have it in conditionalism. And of course, closely connected this, you know, we've talked about human knowledge, is the idea of what human beings are, the inherent anthropology Connected with conditionalism, or what we might call justification theory, it pictures the person as sufficient ground. That is, the people have a rational human capacity to understand God and have ethical insight as to what is required of them. And so when we talk about total depravity or the sin darkening the mind, everyone is thought to reason their way to this depression. I mean, I'm a a sinner. Everybody's supposed to realize that. Regarding the law, regarding their interior state, and regarding God. And so for the conditionalist, 725 seems to be a perfect example of this kind of introspective conscience all people have a correct inf- have correct information about god the world and the law and as i mentioned last week i just never met anybody in japan that had this experience of god and themselves paul says i do not understand my own actions for i do not do what i want i do the very thing i hate and so the conditional says see he recognizes He cannot keep the law. And so here is the self-loathing, the depression sufficient to deliver to faith and salvation. And throughout the trajectory is forward-looking, presuming, we presume these are, he's reached valid premises, the right sort of knowledge, the correct understanding of the law to reach the correct conclusion. Now the unconditionalist, doesn't read this as forward-looking, but as a retrospective point of view. It's a Christian point of view about what he was like before he met Christ. And the idea is not that this is the correct premise. It's not the correct conclusion, but the one who is deceived. You know, this is verse 5. The passage in 5 and 14, it it details what it's like to be controlled by the flesh. It details what Adam is like, what it's like to be subject to death, deception, and desire. This corrupted and deceived person is unaware of what has gripped him. I don't even know myself, he says. Only one who is a Christian can look back on his former manner of life and understand the inherent deception and bondage of his former condition. He could not have known this consciously or introspectively, as this individual is dead spiritually. This is the way Paul says it. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceive me. And through it killed me. And so Paul states it even more sharply over in chapter 8 in verse 7. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And so where justification theory or conditionalism may read this as Paul's pre-Christian consciousness and experience, or maybe even his continued Christian experience, unconditionalism regards this as an account of what he was actually like, but he didn't know it at the time, due to deception. It is an account he was not conscious of. And this is what he says in Philippians 3.6. This really describes his pre-Christian consciousness, because he says that I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. And that in regard to the law, I was blameless. And so Romans 7 may be the truth, uh, as Paul will acknowledge even in Philippians, but I was the chief of sinners. But of course, he didn't know he was the chief of sinners when he was. Only retrospectively does he understand what his condition was from the viewpoint of salvation. And of course, what we're saying about Paul is what we're saying about all of us. Only through Christ do we really comprehend what sin is, right? We really don't understand it while we're in the middle of it. And so he did not know what sin was or the nature of his bondage, nor do any of us. We can't get a handle on it. Only in light of salvation is the deceptive work of the flesh revealed. And in this understanding, Christ rescues us. He redeems humankind from a lie that is not exposed apart from who he is. This is why we call him the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father except through me, because people are deceived. The other thing is there's a different view of Revelation. There's very two very different accounts of Christian revelation. You know, with conditionalism, revelation or Christian revelation, it informs not about so much who God is, not so much about that man is in bondage. Uh, and in fact, it doesn't you really don't need to know anything else in this initial stage. The law is a primary source of information, the law written on the heart of the law in the Old Testament. And this provides the conditions, and we all know the conditions, and then Christ fulfills these conditions. And the law tells of the problem which Christ answers. We all know our problem in this way, and Christ answers the problem. And so Israel, the temple, and the Jewish system Form a coherent system which, apart from Israel's failure, was inherently adequate. If the Jews had kept the law, if those Gentiles had kept the law in their heart, the incarnation would not have been necessary in conditionalism. Unconditionalism equates revelation in Christ with salvation. That is, in that previous bondage, it did not allow for right thinking in regard to the law, in regard to God, in regard to the human condition. And so where conditionalism presumes to read the Bible and history you know, as an unfolding revelation and chronology and culminating in Christ for sure, Unconditionalism presumes that it is only from a retrospective point of view, through the truth of Christ, that we understand the purposes of creation, that we understand what the law was about, that we understand the temple, that we understand Judaism. Now we understand, and this is portrayed in Romans, but Colossians, Ephesians, many places. Christ sums up. He reveals, he concludes creation's purposes. And so in brief, in conditionalism, the law is the condition which Christ adheres to. He affirms it. He satisfies it. And the particulars of this condition, a particular understanding of Israel, a particular understanding of the human condition, those are required. In other words, we're saying this is what Israel is. Unconditionalism does not predict the necessary singular condition of Israel. Judaism may in fact be any number of things. As we know from the New Testament, it is. And the law, which also may be any number of things. But it's anything that will serve in place of God. And Jesus, then, is the determining factor in understanding the human condition, in understanding Israel, in understanding all. law. The other thing is that is about God. And God, of course, makes no appearance in verses 7 to 24. Now, he's there in verse 25. And so the conditionalist is not bothered by the kind of impersonalism and focus on the law, as this is assumed to function like God. And where the unconditionalist might suspect it is sin that is oppressing, punishing, the conditionalist attributes this directly to God and his retributive nature. And so in justification theory, conditionalism, God functions like or in or through a retributive legal system. He's oppressing, he's punishing, and hopefully moving people along to faith or not. But the motive is both fear and oppression. And in this understanding, these are not incorrect, but this is a correct perception. That is, do we get a correct perception of God in 7 7 to 24? Certainly, God's impugned honor or anger is the central fact in conditionalism about God. And thus, 7 to 24, though there is no God the Father, there is no God the Son, there is no God the Holy Spirit, there's only the law. And by the way, in chapter 8, this is going to be all about the Trinity. So when Paul is rescued in chapter 8, you know, he's going to talk about each person of the Trinity and participation in the Trinity. But these verses, by the conditionalists, are thought to provide a right depiction of God. And the oppression which Paul describes as being, you know, he's delivered. Thank God I've been delivered from this oppression. The conditionalist says, yeah, that's God. But the unconditionalist says, no, that's sin. That's not God. The unconditionalist notes that this oppression and punishment do not come directly from God, but from sin, from the misorientation to the law, from the inherent weight of deception. This person's deceived. He doesn't know God. In fact, God, prayer, hope, Christ, the Holy Spirit, none of them make an appearance in 7, 7 to 24. This person knows two things, the law and suffering, chronic suffering. Oppression, due to the deception of sin. This is the deception and bondage Christ exposes. And delivers from. And thus we learn in chapter 8 of God's unstoppable love. There is no love in 7.7 to 24. God is love and cannot be equated with death. He cannot be equated with the law of sin and death. But the fear of death may be mistaken for a fear of God due to sin. And so Christ does not confirm this picture of the law or this understanding of God, but he delivers from this inherently punishing conception and situation. Look at Romans 8, here's the good news, verse 1 and 2. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. The condemnation, he's just described it. That's chapter 7, verses 7 to 25. This flows from sin, deception, death, or as Paul calls it, he sums it up, the law of sin and death. That's our problem. That's not the solution. And God cannot be equated with the law of sin and death. God forbid. And where he is, it must be due to the lie of sin. And the final thing here, of course, is Christ and the atonement. Conditionalists read 7 to 25. This is the anteroom to understanding the work of Christ. You know, this is necessary. This is taken as an accurate depiction of God. Christ is. Takes the oppression of sin upon himself. And he might be said even to be this person in the I and feel this same burdensome weight described in these verses. The unconditionalist argues that Christ does not suffer in the way that this I, this Adam, this Paul suffers with an introspective conscience. You know, Because he's deceived. Christ isn't deceived. And the details of this suffering, of this first Adam, you know, it's actually, there's continual allusions to Genesis 3. As we read, and this is why I began with chapter 5, Paul pictures Christ as the second Adam. He's not the first Adam. He has defeated these evil forces plaguing humanity. There is a different form of suffering. There's suffering in chapter 8, but it's not the suffering of chapter 7. Chapter 8 depicts the suffering of Christ and the suffering of the Christian, I believe, not as a result of sin, deception, and death, but as in the death of Christ you know, it's not God killing Jesus. It's not God torturing Christ on the cross, but it's sinful humanity metting out their vengeful, retributive justice. And that's what Paul says in 8.35-36. to 36, Sinful men killed him. Christ does not fulfill and confirm this retributive justice, but he delivers from it. The retributive system and not the Father kill Christ. But this is the retribution of sinful men. And so Christ defeats the law of sin and death. He defeats retribution, revenge, and violence by not responding with force, violence, or retribution, but he submits to these forces, humbly dying on a cross. And through Christ's resurrection, his resurrection life, the reign of death is ended. Violence and retribution have been defeated. They've been displaced. So Jesus did not die to bear retributive punishment from God, but through his death, he defeats the sinful need for retribution and thus displaces this system entirely. That's why we call it redemption. Retribution is not the condition Christ completes. It's that which he overthrew. The law. The law of sin and death. The law does not enlighten as it only bears fruit for death. Verse 5, 7. It says, we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. So that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. The law is nailed to the cross. The written code was not God's means of reign or rule, but it describes the means through which sin and death reign. The law, you know, that was the opportunity for the deception. Christ has displaced this rule. He's undone the deception. He hasn't confirmed it and extended it, He's undone it. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation. Here's where we start. For all men. So one act of righteousness leads to justification for all men. I'm just reading the Bible here. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Romans 5. 18 to 19. And so there is a universality of the fall, and there is a universality to redemption. And what that means is, it's not dependent upon individual conscience, upon individual human knowing, on individual or natural understanding of God and the law. The entire movement is framed around Christ, and his rescue from the enslavement to sin and death. And so you really don't get from Romans 7 to Romans 8 by passing through Romans 7. Rather, you get to Romans 8 because Christ has defeated the condition of Romans 7. This is the meaning of the atonement. And so in conclusion, both systems, you know, they agree in the problem. Sin is the problem. But conditionalists focus on the law and picture the knowledge surrounding the law as trustworthy. And they say even Christ confirms this. And unconditionalists focus on deception in regard to the law and Christ's defeat of the power of sin and death. Conditionalism relegates the work of Christ to it's a kind of cleanup operation. You know, if Adam hadn't sinned, if Israel hadn't sinned, if Gentiles hadn't sinned. We really don't even need Christ. He's just kind of the final stage of salvation with human knowledge serving as an initial adequate ground and Christ serving to satisfy God's retributive justice. Unconditionalism displaces the lie surrounding God, his supposed retribution, his supposed, you know, Instead of love, God is love, we think of God as law. And the unconditional gospel exposes the lie surrounding human knowing and anthropology. We cannot serve as an adequate foundation. We are not the foundation, but Christ is the one true foundation. And so where conditionalism is it's individualistic, it focuses on a legal fiction, you know, Luther is going to call it imputed righteousness, not real righteousness. It may leave one in the same reality, so that many will read Romans 7.7 7 as if this is a description of the normal Christian life. The key import of the work of Christ in this understanding is while well, we avoid God's anger, and that's the main thing. We go to heaven, we don't go to hell. But the focus is not for all people, it's not cosmic in this understanding, but I think that's what's being depicted. The first Adam did this, the second Adam did that. There is an undoing. And so unconditionalism pictures a cosmic salvation. It's all-inclusive, with Christ as the center of revelation and salvation. Unfolding both backward, inclusive of all that Adam did in the past, and forward. Jesus Christ is the completion of creation's purpose. He is the ground of human knowing. He is the foundation that we build upon. And there is no other foundation.
0: forgingplowshares.org